This is The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. Welcome to Lisa's Christmas mini concert. We've got a great Christmas music sampler for you. We're really excited to have the extremely talented Alex Boyer join us. He is a multicultural global artist known for his diverse blend of African-infused pop music. I mean... Alex does it all. He sings, he dances. I mean, everything with over 1 billion views. That's right, with a B on YouTube. His songs, his captivating videos have made him a viral sensation. I'm really excited to be able to call him friend because he's really focusing on using his platform to create music with motivational, uplifting messages. Alex, you really do. And welcome. Thank you so much. I don't, I, man, I don't pay you enough. That was yeah. the best intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. We've known each other for years, and I have loved to see all the different things that you've done, you know, and, uh, and on, on, on BYU TV, we were able to work together on show offs, yes. but I mean, that oh we have been able to do, you know, Christmas music, you know, concerts right now yeah. here on BYU radio, but you've really, uh, ha- you know, kind of been everywhere. And I'm really curious at this time of the year when everybody says, Hey, you know, it's time to slow down, be with friends and yeah. be with family. Is that hard for you as a performer? Uh, yes, it can be. But it's also exciting, too, because I love singing Christmas music. So, and let's face it, with everything we've gone through, it's like, you know, you have these, you know, Christmas is too early, don't play Christmas music, and then the one that says, yes, play Christmas music. Now, let me tell you, we need to squash that this year. We, ain't yeah. nobody should be talking about how it's too early. Too early for Jesus? Yeah. I just pray not. Come on, people. <laughs> right? I wish that you could have been in my home yesterday. I, I told my daughter, it's time. We're doing it. Yeah. I know we always wait after Thanksgiving. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to. Just lean into Just it lean and in go it for and it. Yep. Play it. Tell them, yeah, man. And don't feel no shame in the game this year. Next year, maybe we go back to normal. But this year, there can't be no shame in the game, man. We need a little Jesus. Need a little Jesus. Need a... Yeah. Oh, hey, I'm here for that all day long. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, you bring up a good point. And I know that within our, our chatting with you, we're going to share a little bit of your music. Normally, we wait yeah. a little bit longer, but I want people to hear what you bring to uh, the holidays, what you bring to Christmas music. And so I want to sample Christmas Time is Here so yes. that people can hear the great yeah. Alex Boyer. Oh, hallelujah. What a blessing. Thank you. One of the things that I love about your music, Alex, is it is undeniably Alex. Whenever I hear a, a song that, that you have put your, your touch on, there's never a question to me where I go, is that Alex Boyer? It's like three notes in. I'm like, oh, that's Alex. That's a new thing. Tell, tell me, why did you decide to do Christmas Time is Here? Um, because uh, I, I cried when I used to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh-huh. And I would hear that song being played with all the kids are singing it. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to do a version of that. And so it's kind of like a Charlie Brown meets Nat King Cole type thing with little African put in there. And so, yeah, it's just fun. Just fun to experiment and just uh, to see what we can come out with. I think that gives us an interesting glimpse maybe into a little bit of your childhood. What was, what was Christmas like for you as a kid growing up? Christmas for me, I just... I ate African food, all my mum's, and pass out, till I passed out, watching, you know what I mean, um, and Home Alone or something like that, you know. I just loved, one of my favorite traditions really was when my uncles and aunts would come, because we had, it's not a typical American, you know, Christmas that we had. It's like African, you know. We're all dressed up in our African garb, and mm-hmm. we have the type of food that, like, is only reserved for, like, banquet, African banquets and stuff like that. And so, you know, the type of food that we wouldn't eat on a normal day. So, mm-hmm. and moms would just be in the kitchen, and you just smell that 
just incredible African food, and you're just like, oh yeah, Christmas is going to be awesome this year. <laughs> so yeah, so I try and include that in my with my kids. You know, and, uh, you know, I married a white girl. And so, you know, we have two different traditions now. <laughs> At least our kids do. You know, we have some African traditions. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have the, Afri- the uh, American traditions. And it's so fun. It's so fun. Do you have that moment, like a lot of families do, where something happens and you're like, oh, this is it. This is Christmas. For me, you know, growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, once I knew that my mom um, turned on Johnny Mathis. <laughs> <laughs> honestly oh. <laughs> and 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 started like setting up christmas i was like oh this is it and it just gave me that feeling of home and and celebration yeah. and peace is there a moment like that of a, of of one of those traditions that you and your family do that that just is like oh this is the quintessential moment yeah you know it was and it's for me it's just something really simple i came home the other day and the the the, the mantelpiece had all this beautiful alpine and everything and pines, and then the Christmas stockings were hung up, and there's mm. eight of them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because we oh, all ten actually, because it's a you know got a big family. And when I see that on the mantelpiece, that's when it hits me. I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming, baby. <laughs> so yeah, that that's really what what does it for me. One of the things uh, that I appreciate that you do, uh, Alex, is in a time and in a world where people would shy away from, you know, proclaiming Jesus or even recognizing that literal yeah. reason for the holiday, you, yeah. you you are not shy about that at all. Why is that? And, well, I think I, I kind of started off doing it as a joke. Uh-huh. Because whenever it's a joke, it's not, you know what I mean? People just like, oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm really serious, yeah. So at the same time, <clears throat> it's almost like a bit of both. But really, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I've gone through a lot of... Um, traumatic experiences um, when I was younger, and some of it was not good. In fact, a lot of it was not good at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through with a therapist, and, and, and she said, look, I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm, she didn't even know what to call herself, but mm-hmm. what she just says is that we just help you go with your trauma and help Jesus heal it. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot that, and I, and, I felt, and I found a lot of healing from that. And so for me, it's almost like, you know, when you advertise for a company, uh, because you had this drink and it's really, really good, and mm-hmm. you're gonna like, I'm just gonna tell everyone about this company, mm-hmm. and and you know what I mean. And that's kind of what it is for me. You know, I just kind of open my mouth because, and it's not like deliberate. It's just because I literally feel really good about it mm-hmm. because of the healing. Yeah. So that's kind of where it's from. With your song "Newborn," I, I'm assuming. Um, that that's based on on the idea and and, and premise, really the the season, right? The newborn, the savior, Jesus. It, am yeah. I correct in assuming that? Yeah, that's right. But you've got to see the music video. <laughs> so, uh, so I I rented this camel called Cosmo the Camel from okay. Eden, Utah. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? And I dressed up as a wise man. I actually went to the BYU costume department, and they dressed me up as the dopest white man. Uh, wise man, white man, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wise man, <laughs> the dopest wise man you will ever see. I mean, I looked amazing. And then I went down to West Valley Shopping Mall, and I walked through the shopping mall with the camel. Singing newborn. Oh wow! And filming people's reactions, and mm-hmm. it is incredible. Wow! <laughs> so cool. So, so people, that's the music video. Yeah. So people, it's can, pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So people can check out that video, but I want to take a moment, and I actually yeah. want to play the song yeah. so that people can hear yeah. it and and get a feel for that. So we'll do that right now. This is newborn by Alex Boyer. Hearing that song and then knowing that the music video, you took a camel into a shopping mall. <laughs> uh, are there and that there are camels in Utah? Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. you know, no. I learned something yeah, they new. Are. You, you, and all the Book of Mormon movies. I just <laughs> borrowed one. You just borrowed one. I love it. You, you, you definitely. <laughs> 
when it comes to like thinking out of the box or being innovative or willing to to push a boundary or try something that has never been done before wh- where do you feel like your creative your your creativity comes from hmm. i think i always have this idea of like you know cuz everybody wants to push boundaries especially today like if you've done a movie i remember the first clark, one of those clark gable movies and you know he said frankly i don't give a you know the uh-huh. am right and then you had to someone had to one up it and then one up it, and now we've just got all the crazy stuff that we have now on Netflix, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. old anything. But I wanted to try and find this way if I could push boundaries of goodness. Like, how yeah. how far can I push it of just goodness? You know what I mean? And yeah. clean, that is creative and maybe not cheesy, but is creative and dope at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's still clean. I yeah. get so excited about that because... I used to remember, you know, growing up, like, you know, when I, I joined the church when I was 16 years old, you know, and I remember people always used to say, Alex, man, you can vent, you go mad, you can get angry. And how is it that you can get so mad with people, but you never swear? And so I was the one that came, I got really creative with all my words and stuff. And people were like, wait, I didn't even hear one swear word, but he still made me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> or he still, still one up me with all the swear words that I hit him with. And yeah. he didn't miss a beat. And so I, I just like to be creative that way, and so, you know what I mean, it, with, with goodness. And so that's kind of where it comes from. I'm always waking up and just thinking, okay, what can I do? What, can I, what angle can I take this time? Oh, no, that's been done before. You know what I mean? Let's try this angle. And I get really excited about it, and I think it's what keeps me fresh with what I'm doing. And it keeps me excited. I love that you are pushing the boundaries of goodness. This isn't something that we all hear about every day, but at this time of the year. What a great message. We only have about a minute left in that time. You've got it. You've got our attention. What is your message to the world to push that boundary of goodness during the the holiday season? I think it's really to... um... To, to there's, there's that scripture that talks about love love yourself love your neighbor as mm-hmm. yourself. <clears throat> I want to focus on this last part, loving yourself. And we don't focus on that enough. We focus on trying to love others during Christmas, but there's this powerful energy that if we strive to do that, then it's easier for us to love others. And so that's been like a goal of mine to work on loving myself more because no one can love themselves enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate the message and the music that you've shared with us. Alex Boyer, you can find him literally everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I... a local shopping mall yeah, on a yeah, camel. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. really, you yeah, never know. Yeah. Keep you it... never know what animal I might turn up with. <laughs> Keep your eyes open, but if you have not checked out that video, find that over on YouTube. Alex, thanks for being on the show. For more than a year now, we've all been doing our best to make it through an incredibly difficult time in history. And for many people... The only way that they could find to cope with the pandemic has been to create toxic habits that are hard to kick. Whether it's gambling, shopping, eating, smoking, or drinking, it's becoming clear that America is becoming addicted to getting addicted. Fortunately, we have people like Dr. Donna Marks, who is a former addict herself, as well as a mental health counselor who has treated over 6,000, let me say that again, 6,000 patients. She joins us this morning to talk about what we can do to overcome our tendency towards addiction. Welcome, Dr. Marks. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. What is it that's unique about the time of the pandemic that maybe is driving people more towards addictions? Well, fear. Hmm. <laughs> fear is always the main, the main driver. And, 
it, it just causes people to not think clearly, to seek immediate relief from that feeling, and then they're usually not uh, going for the healthier things that they could do. Is it in some level uh, a, a sense of control as well? Well, I can control how I can feel or I can control this moment that leads us into those things? Well, control is always a, a part of everybody's personality. You know, if they feel they don't have it, they want it. So, and then if, if we feel we don't have control, we get anxious and we get depressed. So yes, the control is to uh, try and get rid of those feelings, the anxiety and the depression. So that's why people will seek other things. So we have these these sort of normal things uh, like anxiety, like, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly all kind of collectively gone, well, we didn't know that was going to go that way. Well, we didn't know this was going to be that. Not everyone has found themselves in an addictive uh, or addiction situation. What, what's what's the difference with between those maybe that have found themselves there and, and those that haven't? Well, people who know how to love themselves, and that's kind of what makes me different when I'm treating mental health and addiction, is that um, most people who have addictions, I would say all people who have addictions actually, don't really know how to love themselves. So they're running on fear all the time. They just don't realize it's fear. They usually, you know, they feel angry, they feel guilty, they feel out of control, they feel anxious, they, they feel depressed, something's really wrong. And so they'll go to a doctor, they'll go to a therapist, a psychiatrist, they'll, um, you know, try to think differently or they'll be prescribed medication. And it really doesn't address the issue because if you, you can learn how to think 100% clear and you can, you know, take all the pills in the world, but that doesn't really treat that void that's underneath you know every addiction the feeling that something's missing so that we, has to be addressed yeah and we don't have enough time surely to go into the to the depths of all that um which would be awesome if we could but we don't but as we sort of scratch the surface and we talk about self-love i think people hear that and and they go yeah maybe i'm doing that is that a massage is that taking a nap is that you know maybe going for a run or is it much deeper than that well, I, I think it's much deeper than that. First of all, it's a consciousness that I'm no longer going to run on fear. And I don't really know how to take care of myself. So I'm going to learn how to do that. And in my book, Exit the Maze, I, I give a lot of detailed instructions. And also on my website, I have 100 plus ways to love yourself. But just to put it in its simplest terms, uh, you know, think of a baby. And, you know, a, a baby is cared for and nurtured and, and given healthy foods and, and warm clothes and the ideal situation. So, and they're also treated with love. So they, they feel good about themselves. People with addictions, there's something missing in that formula. And I don't blame anybody, you know, parenting, <laughs> who, who knew how to be a parent? And recently, there's some really good literature coming out. And uh, as a psychoanalyst, you know, we talk a, we tell a lot about that and how to properly form healthy attachments. But those key elements are missing for people with addictions. So it's a matter of from the time you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you're going to do? That's not a replacement for love, but is a loving thing. Hmm. You know, some people meditate, some people pray, sometimes people uh, just like to look around their room and, and develop a sense of gratitude that they have a bed to sleep on or that they have a roof over their head, even if they don't have a bed or that, that their needs are being met, you know, having the gratitude and then putting healthy food in our bodies and, and learning how to embrace the reason we're here. We all have a life purpose. So tapping into that and, and giving and receiving love from other people and taking time for yourself, meditating or walking on the beach and 
finding some sense of connection here on this planet. You know, we're here to, to live and to love and to play and to have fun. And we've gotten so serious and so traumatized that we're all in our like voids here in our holes and what I call the maze and we're stuck there. So the idea is to get out of there and break those walls down through acts of, of learning how to love. How do we know, and this may seem like a very basic question, but, you know, pop culture and, and other po people that I've had the opportunity to speak to uh, would make me question this. How do we know that we're, in fact, addicted to something? Or maybe it's just something that we really like, or maybe we do it in excess, or is in excess that very addiction? Not necessarily. The, the key between someone who's addicted and someone who's not addicted is if there's negative consequences. So if I've gained uh, 20, 30 pounds, I'm probably addicted to something that's making me gain that weight. Hmm. If I'm getting a DUI or, or when I drink, I'm having blackouts or I'm fighting with my boss or my spouse, that's a negative consequence. And if I continue to do it, I'm addicted. If I'm uh, quitting smoking or quitting whatever all the time and I go back to it and the, I forget the reasons that I quit because it caused me some kind of problem, I'm addicted. So an addiction is something that you continue to do even though bad things have happened to you in direct relationship to that behavior. We're talking with Dr. Donna Marks about America's addiction to addictions, meaning as we're kind of coming out, air quotes, of course, of this pandemic, and, and we find that, you know, whether it's gambling or shopping, eating, smoking, drinking, uh, so many of us are doing these things in excess to sort of um, soothe the pain or the fear of the unknown uh, or whatever we've experienced, the loss of a loved one from the last year and, and some change. Uh, and I would be curious to know, the genetic disposition of addiction, where you talk, it, it, you know, these are people that don't know how to sort of administer that self-love. Is there something then to the genetic disposition of being able to give yourself love? Well, this is a very, very controversial issue, and I've read a lot about it. And the new trend now in the past 30, 40 years is that, you know, if you have a mental disorder or an addiction, uh, it's because you have a brain disorder. I think this, I don't like this. I don't believe this. I don't think that there's any proof of that. They would have to take babies' brains who are healthy and determine which babies' brains are disordered. I don't know how they would do that and, um, and compare the two and then see which ones become addicted and which ones don't. I mean, there, there's just no way to do that. Um, they can certainly scan brains and things like that, but I, I believe that babies are born pretty much perfect. And even those babies that are not born perfect. Uh, you can look online. There's a couple of videos of people who don't have arms and legs who are full of self-love. Mm -hmm. They are motivational speakers. They have marriages and kids and they're fulfilling their life purpose because they know how to love themselves. So I don't believe that it's a brain disorder other than when you become addicted to something, your brain does become disordered, but it's not because you're born that way and you need a pill to fix it. It's because you've damaged your brain from repeatedly doing something that's stressing you out, that's causing your body chemicals to overproduce and overreact, or you're putting things in your body that are causing it to break down and your brain is one of those organs that will break down eventually. 
I think this can be a pretty heavy topic um, for a lot of people, whether they have that addict in their life, whether they feel like they themselves are struggling. So I'm hoping maybe we can inject some hope into this. Um, certainly, I feel with uh, the way that you've talked about how this can be overcome has been part of that. But you yourself have found your way through addiction. As, as much as you're comfortable, I would be curious to know um, h- how you did that. Well, uh, I, I too had that void, that feeling that something's missing, and it, and it started uh, in my childhood because of uh, a very unhealthy childhood. Uh, no blame on my parents at all. I love them, um, even though my father's gone. But nevertheless, uh, you know, to, they didn't. They did the best they could. Okay, so I, mm-hmm. I've done my healing work around that. But what happens is, you know, that void grows. And, um, and, and so the first time that I was at a slumber party with some girlfriends and I, they said, you want a cigarette? And I said, okay. And I got that feeling, that feeling that, oh God, all that stress is no longer inside of me. And I feel connected with my girl tribe and the cigarette and the nicotine, which is probably the most addictive drug on the planet. I couldn't wait to smoke the next one. And then later on, you know, I, I developed a, the same type of relationship with alcohol. It took a lot longer because I was raised with alcoholism and I controlled my drinking very well for many, many years. And then it was pot and then it was relationships and then it was marathons. So, you know, it just never ending. And even though I had gotten sober, um, it just transferred around from one thing to the next. I didn't understand it. And so that's why I started really doing a whole another dynamic here of, of, of treatment with, with myself and with patients. And what's going on here? You know, why am I just replacing one thing with another? And so I, ha- I recognized I did not know how to love myself. And it took a, a relapse after 23 years for me to really come to terms with that. And everything changed once that happened, once I said, okay, now I see, I'm just replacing one addiction with the other. What does it mean to actually love myself? It would be very likely that someone that is listening to this is either an addict themselves or knows someone who is. As we try and help the person who is addicted, and it can be in whatever form to whatever substance or thing, how can those who love those that are addicted best engage with them be there for them, show the love without maybe enabling or, you know, furthering their addiction? Well, well, you just said it, to um, face it and to have a loving conversation about it. You know, what happens is that uh, a lot of things happen when you have a person that you love who's addicted. Sometimes people are afraid for that person to actually get well. They don't want them to do it like they're doing it, but they don't want them necessarily to stop. So, I think that the, the first step is to really be honest with yourself and then to approach it in a loving way. I love you. I see what's happening here. I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about our, our family. If it's in the workplace, you know, you're missing time. Your door is closed a lot. You're, you're, uh, you're screwing up appointments and, and schedules and things like this. So we need help. We need to get if it's at work, the whole workforce isn't going to go get the help. Although mm-hmm. I like to do con- consultations with workforces to help them, you know, along these lines, but sure. the person can get help. And if it's a family, the whole family should definitely engage in the treatment because people will unconsciously undermine or not understand what kind of support to give and to also heal, you know, the, the, the wreckage of what's happened during addiction and heal that as a family. So the, the most important thing, I think, is to take this from a place of concern and love, not attack, not blame, uh, and to, you know, 
tell the person that they really care about them and they, they want to save the relationship. They want to save whatever. And uh, let, let's get help and I'll do it with you. I'll, I'll, I want to grow with you. I don't expect you to just go get the help. I'm willing to do my part in this uh, to give you the support. Dr. So Marks, there are a lot of books and programs and series and apps and, and all sorts of things uh, around this subject of addiction. And you have written the book, Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure. What is it about that book that is different from all of its other counterparts in the space? I think the, the big thing is that it's very simple to read and it's very clear and it outlines the steps. So first of all, I talk about why this is our number one global crisis. It's at the root of almost all major medical illnesses uh, in the whole world. It's, it, you know, we don't, we're in denial, but it's a, it is the global crisis because people who are addicted are the ones who die first from a coronavirus, but they also die because their addictive behaviors have caused them to have cancer, uh, heart disease, uh, brain damage and liver damage and all kinds of the five major killers uh, are directly related to people who have abused their bodies or their uh, organs to the point that they can't function, especially under a major attack of a, a serious virus like coronavirus. So that's the first thing I talk about. And then I talk about what's why treatment has failed now people will uh, finally get you know an intervention on them or they decide they've had enough and they go for help they go for treatment and so they're taught um, the 12-step program which is wonderful and they're taught to address you know that the wounds that you know, the pain that that hasn't healed yet and what might be causing them to stay stuck but they're not taught how to love themselves so the third part of my book is really drilling down on that concept because we hear the word love and it's a la, 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 yeah, 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 I need to do that. But really, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's an action. You can say you love someone and then you treat them poorly. You don't love them. Yeah. <laughs> and if you treat yourself poorly, you don't love yourself. So when I'm working with my patients, part of it is you have to, you have to keep this commitment. And, you know, we, I will teach you how to do this. And part of that is to developing trust and an attachment with another person. And that's one reason the 12 step programs work because people make friends and they, they socialize, they have barbecues and parties and, and they, they develop those bonds. And it's so important because since us, every addiction is a substitute for love, you've got to replace it with love. And that can't just be by taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. It's also involving taking care of other people. And so uh, having that, those healthy, normal relationships with yourself and others. You won't even be thinking about the addictions anymore. It's just something you used to do. The book is called Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure. We've been visiting with the author, Dr. Donna Marks. You can find out more about her work by visiting her website, which is drdonnamarks.com. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Do you believe in aliens? Well, about half of Americans do. Aliens and sci-fi are a big deal in our pop culture. And there's a reason. So what is fact and what is fiction? Well, to help us sort out some of the information about UFOs and alien encounters on Earth, we're speaking with Greg Agigian, a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, who studies the history of alien phenomenon all around the world. Well, welcome. 
Hi. Thank nice to be you here. so much for being here, um, Dr. Aguigan. First of all, UFO sightings seem to be fairly recent history that aligns with 1950s movies and TV shows. I think that's where we think it came from. But what are some of the earliest reports of people seeing unexplained things in the sky? Well, boy, I mean, seeing strange things and odd things in the skies goes back to really ancient history. I mean, you have you have people seeing things they didn't think should happen. Of course, now we think a lot of these things were things like meteorites and, and meteors and, mm -hmm. and comets and things like that. But the whole phenomenon of seeing strange flying airships and things like that right. is something that you start to hear already in the 1800s. There are really? people who are seeing, yeah, yeah, who are reporting seeing strange objects. Typically what they picture and they describe are not anything like the flying saucers of the 1950s. What they tend to think they mm -hmm. see are either odd kind of things that look like what we would call airplanes today, or they see things that are look like balloons or dirigibles and things like that. Yeah. Well, what did they think was going on? Back then, the number one thing that people talked about in the 1800s mm -hmm. was the, the general story there that you heard was that it was t the idea was it was some sort of inventor, quirky, eccentric tinkerer <laughs> right. who had managed to finally crack this, you know, this challenge that everybody was aiming for in the 1800s, which was figuring out how to master the skies and fly. Mm -hmm. And so this crazy, odd little fellow, you know, had done this and he had you know, flown around and said hi to everybody. And that was really the number one thing that people talked about. Yeah. So yeah. that's so interesting to me because it's not the common explanation that we come up with today. <laughs> no, it is not. It is not. How did that morph from, oh, look, it's crazy Mr. Jenkins yeah. down by the road. He's always inventing something to, <laughs> I seriously saw a UFO. Yeah. Well, that happens. That really, I mean, there's there's already some 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 talk already in the 1800s, and, but certainly in the beginning of the 20th century, of there's some talk that perhaps it could be that strange things might mm -hmm. be visitors from another planet. The typical scenario back then was that it was Mars, because there was a, it was generally thought back then that Mars was inhabited. Um, that was a fairly mainstream perspective on things. Oh, wow. But what really changes, it, it is in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when you have the beginning of this idea that people are seeing flying saucers, that you have some people put forward the idea that this is, that the source of this are, are some sort of beings who are from another planet or another solar system who are visiting us. And then, of course, the big question that everybody was wondering at the time was, if that's the case, why are they here? Right. <laughs> and boy, we've been visiting? answering that question over and over again with movies, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We have. <laughs> well, right? so UFOs, unidentified flying objects, what are the most popular objects people claim are, are UFOs? Oh, I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, there's no question that, that, that a lot of what people see um, and a lot of what people describe, if you look at what witnesses have said uh -huh. historically over time, is they see, you know, anything from strange, a strange cloud pattern. They may see mm. something like uh, an odd reflection of sunlight on an airplane that makes it look like it might be flat or saucer-like. Um, uh, it can oftentimes, it, we know people mistake meteors and things like that, uh, meteor showers for these objects. But sometimes we just simply don't know. We simply do not know what people saw, right? Well, and they, they don't know. And they don't know. And right. so you fill in the blanks. Well, 
Yeah. Um, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that UFO sightings really kind of ebb and flow. Do you think the frequency of reported sightings has, has changed over time? Oh, it's changed. There's no question. And you're quite right. It does ebb and flow. There are periods of which you have a kind of really intense number of sightings and reports in a certain location, or sometimes they can be even global in that regard. Uh, and then there are times where it just sort of uh, falls down. There's a kind of a precipitous decline. Um, and there's no question that, that, that the, the kind of the other thing that changes like that is also interest in UFOs. There, that yeah. ebbs and flows over time. I think a lot of people, I hear this a lot when I talk about this, this fact that I'm writing on this and doing research on this. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of people who are older who tell me and sit there and say, you know, it seems to me this stuff isn't as big as it used to be when I was a kid. <laughs> Right? Really? And yeah. I think, I think I think a lot of us ha have that experience, you know. Um, and so that's a question: if, Is that really the case? And if so, how do we explain that? Why is the interest also seemingly ebbing and flowing as well? Well, how do you um, rate the situation today? Because now that we have the internet and social media, do you see that interest in UFOs and aliens has grown or declined or just stayed the same? Well, it's kind of interesting. So, so I think there's plenty of good evidence to indicate, certainly UFO researchers have said this, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of evidence to indicate that reports, that sightings have actually increased over, say, the last decade, decade and a half. Mm -hmm. um, but there's lots of other evidence to indicate that interest in many ways has declined. Now, it all depends uh -huh. on how you want to measure huh. it and think about it. But I think one of the ways in which you can talk about the decline of interest is two things. One is you can, in fact, sort of measure and, and actually track the fact that sort of mainstream news coverage of UFOs and aliens has declined over, say, the past 20 years or so. Um, the other thing that you can see when you talk to veteran UFO uh, enthusiasts and researchers who tell me all the time that it is um, uh, a lot of the organizations that used to flourish back in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. even into the 80s, have all sort of fallen apart or dissolved, and that it's very, very hard to get young people to come out and be part of organizations. So there's some indication hmm. that, that sort of the kind of old school way in which people sort of participated in all of this stuff <laughs> right. has declined. But that doesn't mean that people aren't, as you say, going online. Uh, these, sh these shows that you talk about that are very popular and doing very well for some of these cable channels, right, indicates there still remains a kind of very lively interest in the subject. We're talking with Greg. Gigian, who's a historian of science and medicine at Penn State University, but he also writes and teaches about the history of the supernatural and paranormal. And I want to zero in on encounters now. So, so some people see UFOs and others claim that they've really met aliens inside these, these mysterious ships. So when did people start reporting that they had encounters with aliens? So the first reports really start up um, basically in the, in the 1950s, in the very mm -hmm. early 1950s. And what's really interesting is to look, if you look at the long history of it, the, the ways in which people talked about those encounters with aliens has changed really, really radically over time. So really? in, the 50s, in the 50s, the people who said they had these encounters, for the most part, described beings who looked like us, Sometimes they were actually not only looked like us, they looked better than us. They described them as absolutely beautiful mm -hmm. and gorgeous and radiant. And the other thing about them is they were amazingly nice and friendly. They were generous. They, they, they 
they either spoke English or spoke with people telepathically. And then they described the fact that they were here to help us, to help us get through the struggles that we have before us, particularly the struggles with things like war and nuclear disaster and things like that. Then over the course of the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. you start to see the emergence of some smaller tales and darker stories emerging where people say, well, these creatures uh, kind of attacked me or made me feel uncomfortable or something like that. Hmm. And then when we get into the 70s, 80s and 90s, this is when you see the emergence of, of course, what's now become fairly famous, these stories of abduction, right? right? Where people have been taken from their homes or their family's been taken from them. They've been transported to this thing. The aliens now no longer look like us, right? They look mm-hmm. like these creatures we've all seen in movies. And what they start doing is they perform these kind of scientific experiments on us. Right. And that becomes the new sort of story. So it's really changed quite radically over the years. Well, are there any common characteristics that, that usually describe encounters with aliens? Well, they are in these different periods of time, right, in these different periods of time. And I think the big thing is, of course, that what what is common in all of these scenarios mm-hmm. um, is that it, le- it leaves the people who talk about this, who themselves say they, they experience this, and, of course, people who are then interested in the subject and mm-hmm. commenting on it leaves them all asking the question again, what is going on? Right. Why are they here? <laughs> Why are they doing this? And, in fact, that becomes, in fact, the most basic question. Mm-hmm. of all of the history of UFOs is is it seem there seems to be a puzzle there's a mystery here and and all of the people who are really concerned with this are really invested in trying to crack this puzzle what what are they up to what do the aliens want from us and sometimes that answer is uh, very, like I say, a very a very benevolent one. It's one in which people come to the conclusion, oh, they're just here. They're curious about us. They're looking at us because they're wondering what we're up to or or they're here because they think they want to help us out. Or like I said, these other scenarios in which there are people who come to the view, no, 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 this is part of the beginning of an invasion, the part of a beginning of a colonization of Earth. And so you get lots of different answers to that question. And lots of different movies. Yeah, <laughs> I know I keep going to this, movies. but I, yeah. I feel like that this is where it, it, it leads us to, and, and emphasizes that we have this fascination. So why do you think that people are drawn into the existence of aliens and, and all the conspiracy theories about alien visitors? Well, I think I think the it, there's lots of different reasons why people get involved in this. And I always tell people, you know, they're the, the, the folks who really are, 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 are part of the, the UFO community, if there's mm-hmm. such a thing as that, is a very diverse group of people. I mean, I know people who, who are interested in this and they're not interested in the conspiracy theories or any of these things. They're just interested in in trying to figure out, oh, why? What was that thing that people saw right. back then? That, it's, it's, I, I, I'd say it's something akin to bird watching, right? Or train spotting. <laughs> uh, they're sure. people just like that. There, then there are others, right, who have this interest that you're describing. I think the key to it was mm-hmm. we have to never forget that all of this came about during the Cold War, right. a, a period mm-hmm. of time in our history in which we it was filled with a lot of suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of uh, angst, right? A lot of anxiety, a lot of worry 
um, and wondering about these new technologies we've created, these, this ability to create right, intercontinental right. ballistic missiles, and to also explore space. And so it's interesting, right, because the, the, the space age, the Cold War, gives us both this, um, these scary kinds of new weapons in the world, right, that right. seem to make us very vulnerable. And yet, on the other hand, it gives us all the promise and the hope of reaching the moon, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things are folded into this story. And so it's not a surprise to me that people see in the UFO phenomenon a way to sort of uh, uh, think through these kinds of anxieties on one hand and these hopes and aspirations on the other. I love it. Well, most people have heard rumors about uh, things like Area 51 um, and, and, air, and claims in the United States. What's the history of the government and, and UFOs? Yeah, so the government government gets, and, and not just the United States, governments across the world, become uh, very interested in this right off the bat. And for obvious reasons, it's the military interest. It's the, it's the idea that once there are these reports of strange objects in the sky, the question that militaries and particularly air forces have uh, is, of course, do these things represent a national security threat? And so right off the bat here in the United States in 1947, uh, the, the Air Force starts to create a kind of a, an, not an agency, but really kind of projects and an, an office that will sort of look into these reports, try to track and figure out what, what are people seeing? Because, the in, of course, mm. the initial concern here on all counts is that this is these, these things that people are seeing might well be technology from one of uh, one of our enemies, one of our opponents, yeah, and like particularly the like Soviet your, Union. Your, na your neighbor, Mr. Jenkins, but he's, you know, inventing something in another country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, in this case, it's, you know, it's Comrade Stalin in the Soviet right. Union. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that we have to worry about that we have to sure. worry about. But I would tell you that it's, it's interesting is that in the United States, it's, it's kind of clear that by the early 50s, the, the U.S. Air Force, by and large, uh, really, really questions whether any of this stuff is anything we have to worry about. And so they continue to track this. They continue to keep records on this. They continue to have some people who are dedicated to sort of uh, taking, taking in these reports and analyzing the data. But by and large, they keep coming back to the same thing, that they say that we can account for almost 90% or 95% of these things, that these things are typically uh, either hoaxes or optical illusions or something like that. But that the other 5%, they're not worried about. We just, they say, we just don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't see you any know, cause. We don't know. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. Well, yeah. okay, so you have done a ton of research in this and have taken a very academic look at it. What's yeah. the most interesting story you've heard while studying UFOs and alien encounters? Oh, my word. There's so many. There's so many interesting <laughs> stories. What's your favorite? I mean, I think, I, well, you know, I still think one, of, and it's still a classical case, but it's this case of this couple in 1961, claimed that this happened to them in 1961, mm -hmm. uh, Betty and Barney Hill from New Hampshire, who um, are traveling in their car, they say, one day at night. And um, they see a UFO and um, uh, are starting to get out of the car. They look at it. It kind of makes them a little anxious. They keep traveling. And then mysteriously, they lose about, oh, I think it's about two hours, they say, of time. And then the next thing they know, they're back in their car traveling. And um, over, over several years, 
the, the, this amnesia they have bothers them. They have nightmares. They have some health problems. And so what they do is they, they start to um, seek out some help. They go to some UFO researchers, and they eventually go to a doctor who uh, places them under hypnosis. And using hypnosis, he claims, uh, they, they sort of recover some memories of what they experience and what they describe. And they are probably the initial, the, probably the great sort of case, initial case of, say, they were abducted by aliens and, and experiments were performed on them. And so um, this becomes a kind of model for so wow. many of the other kind of narratives we hear. But it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fascinating, oftentimes really frightening story. The doctor involved, by the way, uh-huh. in the end did not believe that they were abducted. He thinks uh-huh. that, that, that these were really kind of nightmares that got folded into their memories in some way. Hmm. But, but it, it, it's nonetheless, even, even if that's the case, it, it, the story is really kind of um, uh, heartbreaking in many ways because it caught what, whatever happened to them and however they experienced uh-huh. it really led to a, a real crisis for these folks and really uh, shows the way in which these, this, these kind of things can have a real impact in people's lives. Right. Well, finally, after all of this research, how has this affected your beliefs about alien visitors? Well, I, you know, I tell people uh-huh. that my, my approach and my interest in this subject is not one in which I'm interested in either validating the view that extraterrestrials are visiting us or, or debunking these kinds of okay. things. There are people who do both those things. They do them very effectively. Um, so, I, and I know people hate it when I say this. But, <laughs> I know well, I kind of wanted a yes or no, but I, I, I get where you're coming from. Yes you're no. an academic. I, okay. I, no. <laughs> and and I, I'm fascinated. Well, I kind of say, I, you know, I take a journalistic approach. I'm really, sure. really interested in it. What I will say is this. I, I will echo the words of a, of, a, of a former colleague of mine who's now retired by the name of David Hufford, who worked on things like ghosts and witchcraft. And, and he, as he put it, he said, a lot of these experiences we have to acknowledge, the descriptions of these experiences accurate, but not necessarily true. And that Mm -hmm. is to say that people have experiences that I think are genuine. And what they describe are accurate descriptions of what they experienced. What happened may not necessarily, however, be what they speculate is what happened to them or what others might speculate what happened. Right. And so I think part of what we have to do is acknowledge the fact that people can have very different experiences of the, in the world. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the important thing. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. We all have different experiences. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Professor Gagan. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Greg Gagan is a historian of science and medicine at Penn State University. Among other things, he writes and teaches about the history of the supernatural and paranormal. He's now writing a book about the history of UFOs and reports of alien contact. (laughs) 